It's the 28th of January, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, a trifecta on gout and the last word on the oral surveillance study. Which patient characteristics do you rely on to inform your choice of treatment? An exploratory study that looked at Orenzia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor may provide some insights. Don't treat in the dark. Visit orenziadata.com. But first, we're going to start with a study that looks at post-COVID syndrome. You know, the numbers are pretty staggering for those who had COVID, especially severe COVID. Um, a year out, up to 50% of patients are still having lingering symptoms and, and whatnot, um, memory problems, sleeping problems, lung problems, heart problems, etc. This particular study of uh, almost 2,000 patients from Spain who are hospitalized with COVID looked at post-COVID syndrome and specifically looked at the RMD, rheumatic disease patients, in that cohort, only 31. But nonetheless, they do have long-term follow-up. And they showed that long-term post-COVID symptoms not increase, odds ratio 1.46, but it crossed the confidence interval of one. Um, functional limitation was not increased, anxiety, depression, nor musculoskeletal complaints post-COVID. So while this is a small study as far as the MSK uh, RMD cohort, um, it does nonetheless provide encouraging data for your patients who have rheumatic diseases or musculoskeletal conditions and what happens to them long-term. They did not notice, um, again, an increase in their symptomatology or, or problems from their original disorder. Uh, this is the era of COVID still, and we are, many of us still, engaged in telemedicine. The question is, is that working? Uh, if you've abandoned it, should you go back to it? Um, several of you, good friends of mine, are not, not happy with me being a proponent for telemedicine in rheumatology, and I am. Uh, this particular study is a nine, almost a 900, 800 patient uh, study of those who were being followed either with telemedicine or not uh, in that particular cohort. Uh, it was available to most uh, uh, three quarters of patients. It was made available uh, in almost most of those patients. I think like 63 out of 75% of them, it was available by video. I think it's a big mistake just to do phone only telemedicine. Tele doesn't mean the telephone. It really should mean televideo. Um, but nonetheless, the question is, how did this fare with the patients? And overall, satisfaction was good. Uh, patients who were doing telemedicine gave it a 7.3 out of 10 score as far as their overall satisfaction. 26% of them were very satisfied. Uh, what was it good for? When they compared patients who used it those who didn't use it, uh, it was uh, good for routine visits, 73%, test result review, 63% said so, and maybe when considering medication changes, said so by 41%. Not so much when it came to changing to new injectable medicines, meaning there's probably more going on there than you want to trust to a video visit, and I think most of us would endorse that. So, and again, routine visits opposed to first visits. Um, patients you know as opposed to patients you don't know. The point here is that patients who do it like it. The non-believers don't believe so much. It's not the patients. It's really you. Are you a believer? 
Because if you're a believer, you'll be using it, and your patients will believe in it, and you'll teach them how to use it. If you're a non-believer and say hooey to that nonsense, your patients are going to say, I'm not doing any of that. My doctor doesn't believe in it. So it's really up to you to either get on board or get off the bus. I'm driving the bus, I guess. So let's talk about that trifecta relating to gout. We'll begin with the FREED study. F-R-E-E-D. I wasn't familiar with this. This is a study done in Japan on asymptomatic hyperuricemic patients, meaning there's no gout here, but they have hyperuricemia. And in a fairly large cohort, they did a three-year study that looked at um, the development of atherosclerotic disease. And in that large cohort, uh, half of them got Fabuxostat. The other half got placebo. And they, over two years, they did not show an, uh, a reduction in the amount of atherosclerotic disease in the coronary, uh, in the um, carotid vessels. I think that they did um, usual testing for that. But they did, on an extended follow-up of over 1,000 patients, they did show that the Fabuxostat-treated group did have significantly fewer cardiovascular events, uh, strokes, and renal events, and even death. So the question is, does long-term reduction in hyperuricemia lead to a significant change in atherosclerosis? Not clearly shown in the two-year study, but does it have a benefit to these other things we really do worry about? And the answer seemed to be yes in the study. Again, I think this gives credence to the fact that we probably should be treating asymptomatic hyperuricemia. You know, we were all raised in an era that said you should probably wait until it's above 11 or above 14 or something along those lines. I don't think so. I think a uric acid of 9 is dangerous, especially over a number of years. I'm treating it if I'm given the opportunity to do so. I think there are some cardiologists and some nephrologists who are coming around to this belief uh, as well. Um, next, on the gout hit parade, coming in at number two, is does hyperuricemia in gout lead to uric acid deposits in the vasculature? And maybe that's why gout patients have more cardiovascular events. We know that to be true. The worse your gout, you know, tophaceous gout patients have way more uh, cardiovascular events than do um, just patients who don't have TOFI, for instance. So uh, this was looked at in an interesting cadaver study. So they took the cadavers of six patients with gout, two of whom had tophaceous gout, and they did DEX scanning on them to see if they could define uh, monosodium uric deposits within the vasculature of these uh, cadavers. And they did not, in fact, find those usual bright lime green um, depends on how you set you make your settings, but they're usually nice and lime green uh, in the vasculature. And even though that when they stuck needles in the joints of the cadavers, they were able to recover uh, MSU crystals. So the point here being that the, the vascular damage is not due to direct crystal deposition in the vasculature. It is, yes, we all know, it's all inflammation. Uh, uncontrolled systemic inflammation has the downstream effect of more cardiovascular events, uh, and it's not necessarily deposition. We do know that deposition can lead to damage in joints where it can lead to erosion of bone um, and can lead to damage in cartilage as well. Uh, but in this case, as far as the vasculature, not so much. And number three, allopurinol safety in patients with renal disease. 
You know, there is this crazy belief out there that if they got, oh, they got renal insufficiency, you can't use allopurinol or you've got to dose adjust and whatnot. And that's not true at all. Um, and there's a lot of studies to po point to that. And the gout uh, experts and mavens have taught me that uh, use allopurinol, just watch the creatinine. It's not going to change. Colchicine is a totally different story. Colchicine toxicity really does go way up with renal insufficiency, but not so much with allopurinol. So I start my patients, everybody gets a 100 milligram testos. I start at 300 and I escalate to get the uric acid down. I'm watching renal function. I don't care if the creatinine's 1, 1 1.5, 1.8, 6.3 or 3.8. I'm still using whatever dose of allopurinol I need. Well, this particular study is, is comes from the UK database called the Health Improvement Network. You know, I don't know, lots and lots of lives. And they enrolled people over the age of 40 who had gout and had moderate to severe CKD. And they looked at the relationship between um, uh, starting allopurinol, the dosing of allopurinol, and achieving serum urate targets with allopurinol on the outcome, their primary outcome Again, this is a database. Um, they look at the hard outcome of death. Yeah, it's a bit extreme as far as side effects, I understand. But it is nonetheless, um, I think, a positive message here in that the allopurinol initiation, um, achieving target levels, dose escalation, these were not associated with higher mortality rates. In fact, allopurinol initiation was associated with a significantly lower, 15% lower risk of um, cardiovascular death. And there are some studies showing that urate lowering therapies do lower risk of cardiovascular events and cardiovascular death. Not consistent, but this study, it did. This study also showed that uh, dose escalation of allopurinol was associated with a 12% reduction. That was a non-significant reduction in um, cardiovascular mortality. And achieving serum urate targets of less than six uh, was also associated with a 13% lower rate of mortality, although that number was not significant. So again, use allopurinol or urate-lowering therapy safely uh, and monitor. Um, don't be afraid to use that. You know, one of the big issues we talked about in the past was women um, who are pregnant, they were avoiding getting vaccination. I mean, vaccination rates around 20-something percent in that group. And women who get covid having pretty bad outcomes, both maternal and fetal outcomes not being favorable. So the general push was to get people who are pregnant uh, vaccinated, either before they got pregnant or even while they're vaccinated. So this particular study came out from MMWR this week, a report of over 40,000 women who are pregnant who received the COVID-19 vaccination schedule. Um, and in their study, vaccination was not associated with the untoward outcomes of uh, preterm uh, pre birth or small for gestational age compared to unvaccinated uh, women. So this is a, a step showing the safety of vaccination in women who should be vaccinated. UCB announced this week the results of their uh, phase three B complete study. This is a study of bimikizumab, the dual IL-17 inhibitor uh, being used in psoriatic arthritis patients with active disease. In this particular um, press release, we don't have full data here, um, they were looking at an ACR50 outcome at, um, at week 16. Those on bimikizumab, uh, again, a drug that inhibits uh, IL-17A and IL-17F, uh, had a 
um, ACR50 response rate, which was significantly better than the placebo. They also had um, significantly better secondary outcome measures, such as the POSSE90 um, minimal disease activity uh, and patient global assessments. I want to remind you that March 19th, March 20th, coming up, Room Now Live, uh, we want you to be there on site or virtually to be in the discussion. It's an exceptional experience for exceptional rheumatologists like you. RNL 2022 is where you come, comment, rate, and rank. We want your input. You are part of the show. It's going to be a great meeting. We got a lot of people already registered, so um, the link is in there, or you can go to roomnow.live to register. You know, I put out a survey this week on the Ectemra shortage, and um, but I also tacked on a question about what are you thinking right now, you the rheumatologist, about going to virtual meetings. And one of the questions in the survey, answered by 174 rheumatologists in one day, was are you going ACR 2022, the ACR convergence, next year in Philadelphia? 20% of you said, yeah, I'm, my bags are packed, I'm ready to go, standing here outside, Never mind. Um, they're going to Philadelphia. They're going. 24% they're planning to do it virtually. It's kind of a split there. What's everybody else doing? 43% are undecided. They really want the hybrid option. We're going to see as we get closer to, and I think this is the way people are thinking right now. This is what we're seeing with Room Now live registration. A lot of people are going to some of the live meetings out there. I'm going to uh, RWCS meeting in Maui in a few weeks. That looks like it's got a num large number of people going to it um, and some people um, coming in online. Uh, so we're going to see the same thing with Room Now Live. Uh, the original question in the survey that went to you, the rheumatologist, was are you experiencing um, the Actemra shortage? And 74% said yes. Another 6% said not me so much, but my, com but my partners are complaining about it. Uh, most of you are waiting it out, looking for the resupply to come and Genentech, the manufacturer of Ectemra. And we're talking about it, largely a shortage here of IV, tocilizumab. They say the drug is in supply and should be available. Um, so many of you are waiting for resupply. Some of you are switched over to sub-Q. And I think 20-something percent said that they've actually switched to other biologics because this was becoming a burden for their patients. Our next report has to do with do boosters the third dose of an mRNA vaccine work in immunocompromised hosts. So you might remember in August of last year, the FDA issued an EUA emergency use authorization for the use of a third mRNA vaccine um, greater than um, uh, 28 days after um, uh, the primary series. Um, and that was in patients with Let's see, let me read this again. For a third mRNA vaccine as part of a primary series greater than 28 days after dose two, so it'd have to be after a month. But then they came out and they said um, a month or two later in November that the booster dose for all, all adults, so that's a, oh, let me get back and clarify, sorry. I actually don't have good notes on this, but I now have it clear. Um, all, all adults should get the booster vaccine, and that was November of 20. 21 uh, over the age of 18 and you should get it six months after and then in january this year 2022 they said that the booster timing changed to more than five months after the second dose and the original report had to do with immunocompromised patients where their data said that should be given um, at least 
or no less than 28 days after the second. So you can use it earlier in your immunocompromised patients or those who you believe are, are immunocompromised. Um, and we're going to end with a discussion of the um, oral surveillance study, the 1133 study done by Pfizer uh, in high-risk RA patients. That was just published this week in the New England Journal. Lead author on that is uh, Yitterberg et al. It's a four-year randomized trial, open-label, non-inferiority design, uh, post-approval study with a primary safety endpoint in high-risk patients, meaning people over the age of 50 with a, some kind of cardiovascular risk factor. And they were looking at cardiovascular outcomes and cancer outcomes. If you haven't heard about this study, oral surveillance, or also called the 1133, you must be living under a rock. That's all we covered at ACR. Um, we've got a lot of data, a lot of uh, opinions about this. Um, I will, you know, uh, I'm putting this up here because um, Jazz Singh from UAB had a nice sort of commentary editorial on this study. Um, uh, I think it's it's worth maybe review, reviewing his article in, in the New England Journal or our review of his article. The bottom line is that there were more MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events in the TOFA group versus the TNF inhibitor group, 3.4 versus 2.5%. This was beyond the upper limits of, of non-inferiority, and that's why it was gets a higher label. Also, higher cancer events were seen in the TOFA group, 4.2% versus 2.9%. Again, the non-inferiority upper limit was surpassed. So overall, the hazard ratio was significantly increased for the MACE events, at 1.33 and and cancer events at 1.48 the numbers needed to harm were um you know up there you know in many of these cases depending on how you slice and dice it it was as low as 50 usually around 100 sometimes 200 sometimes 700 the point being that these have been relatively uncommon events uh and dr singh points out a few things that are worth considering here First off, the general opinion um, on this is that the FDA has come down pretty hard on this. And because of the data incurred in this tofacitinib trial, they've now extended that to the other JAK inhibitors used for the same indications as tofacitinib, meaning baricitinib and upadacitinib. Um, Dr. Singh points out that as much as this is of interest, especially in older, higher risk individuals, What's the mechanism by which a JAK inhibitor causes more cardiovascular events or causes cancer? Not so clear um, how you can in invoke a, you know, a cause for this directly related to that. I think what's become apparent to many is that mm, tofacitinib was being compared to uh, uh, TNF inhibitors, and that was adalimumab here in the United States, etanercept in Europe. Um, and we do know that adalimumab and etanercept very, very effective at lowering cardiovascular event rates, especially the longer they're used. This was, you know, a four-year study, almost 5,000 patients. So the point in this trial seems to be that tofacitinib was not as good as a TNF inhibitor in lowering cardiovascular risk, hence it looked a little bit higher. Is that the same as saying it has a greater risk? Well, it is, but maybe it shouldn't be. And I think that's for you to consider by looking at the data. Again, TNF inhibitors are highly effective at lowering cardiovascular risk, 
do TNF inhibitors lower cancer risk? Until recently, we didn't have any good evidence of that. And you do know that there were there's a warning in the in the boxed warning and in the label for the TNF inhibitors saying that there may be more lymphomas and whatnot. But the facts are that TNF inhibitors don't cause more cancers over and above that caused by rheumatoid arthritis. I know because I've studied this. I've said this many, many times. If you want to argue with me, I'd love to argue with you about this because to me, this is very obvious. RA patients have no increase in cancer compared to the general population. Wait, that's not really true. RA patients have a lower risk of certain cancers, colon cancer and, and urogenital cancers, for instance, but a higher risk of other cancers. Breast cancer is a little lower risk as well. Higher risk of other cancers, skin cancer, lung cancer, lymphoma, especially non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So the original data where TNF inhibitors were damned for that association gave you exactly that same association. Lung cancers, skin cancers, lymphoma, but not the other ones. And the SIRs were basically the same seen in RA populations before the biologic era. So it's what we see in RA. RA patients bad enough to have inflammation that would cause those particular cancers. And that's what we're seeing here with the JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib. And it's in the exact same distribution. And yes, it was higher. But again, is this a situation where the TNF inhibitor was, is in fact capable of lowering the event in some people, but not other people? And the JAK inhibitor, not so much? Again, this is all food for thought. I do want to remind you, whether it's RA, RA on a TNF inhibitor, or RA on a JAK inhibitor, the pattern of cancer seen is skin, non-melanoma skin cancer, not so much melanoma as everyone's worried about. Um, that's what the skin is where the bigger numbers are. And number two, lymphoma. And number three, lung cancer. Now, again, what they say is that um, the results of the study do not apply to the following populations, those younger than age 50. In fact, a lot of the cancer, a lot of the MACE events were in over the age of 65 and in former smokers. That really dropped the numbers way, way down if you take out those two uh, people. But these results don't apply to those under age 50. Those over age 50 with no additional cardiovascular risk factors, those who have an incomplete or unacceptable response from a TNF inhibitor. So that's not been studied here, right? What to do after a TNF inhibitor? Is it safe? I want to add that it also doesn't apply, in my opinion, to those already on a JAK inhibitor and doing well. I would not stop a JAK inhibitor. I would have the discussion with my patients and see what they want to do. Um, those that are not doing well and those who are worried because their aunt Louie died of, of a blood clot or a cancer and they think this applies to them, well, that's a discussion you need to have. Um, Dr. Singh concludes with the increased risk with tofacitinib as compared with TNF inhibitors must be balanced against patient preferences for the oral medication and the potential benefits of either or. Some say this is really going to affect JAK inhibitor use going forward, but most of the rheumatologists I've talked to really say that's not the case. They're still prescribing the same way. They're just having more conversations about this. I think what will change is managed care guidelines on this. I think will be more red flags that they'll throw up, especially in patients in this, in this particular group. Again, the package insert was changed with, with new box warnings, but also the label that said you shouldn't try a JAK inhibitor until you failed a TNF inhibitor. Um, the question is, 
Um, are there other things that we should be worried about? Are there other unanswered questions with regard to JAK inhibitor use that especially not studied by this study? You got to remember this study was done in high risk older people. We didn't have any real concerns about these particular events um, because the results of the drug development trials, the randomized control trials done after and before approval, long-term extension trials, registry data, large cohort studies did not implicate JAK inhibitors in any of these events. So that's a little contrary to what's being um, reported in the New England Journal article or what the FDA is giving us caution about. Do we need another 5,000 patient study in low risk or usual risk patients? No, that was already done in the drug development where 12,000 patients, 14,000 patients were in fact studied. Do we need another 5,000 patient trial in patients who fail the TNF inhibitor? I don't know, it's a high risk group. In patients who already have cancer or a history of DVT or a history of smoking with an MI, you know, just to see how bad they might do? No, that seems to be unnecessary and maybe even punitive. Overall, you know, what happens to sick patients who you enroll in a trial? Sick things happen. If they come in sick, you know, high risk in, bad outcome data out. That's the way it works here. Look at all gout trials. They're really messy because they're high risk going in. Having active disease plus other risk factors, you're going to get some high risk. So um, the question here is, what do you do with a high risk patient? Over age 65, former smoker, um, they're a mess. Are you not going to give them a JAK inhibitor? I would give them a TNF inhibitor first. But are you going to hold back your best therapies and give them something that hasn't been studied? like triple DMAR therapy or leflunamide plus hydroxychloroquine? No, not if you believe that's not as effective because inflammation uncontrolled is what's killing most of these people. So again, it really puts you in a different, difficult spot in making um, decisions about going forward. But we're largely talking about tertiary DMAR choices in patients over the age of 50. At that point, it gets difficult. And that's the discussion we need to have going on. I would like to see actually more data and safety signal data on usual patients that we treat, you know, the 47-year-old, the 32-year-old, the 25-year-old, and, and the safety of all drugs we use. That's my opinion, but I'm sticking to it. Um, tune in next week for more on the podcast. While there is great hope that an understanding of biomarkers will benefit rheumatoid arthritis patient management, there are but a few biomarkers shown to be both diagnostic and prognostic. Researchers have suggested that RA patients who test positive for specific autoantibodies may express higher disease activity, which could impact treatment strategies, but most practitioners generally use these results only for diagnostic purposes. Bristol-Myers Squibb is investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population, patients who tested positive for these antibodies, which together are associated with higher disease activity. Rheumatologists may want to consider these biomarker-driven results when considering treatment options. To learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.